Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 219, The Crew 3 Astronauts. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Four astronauts are ready to launch from American soil on board the SpaceX Crew Dragon for the third crew rotation mission and the fourth crewed mission with SpaceX. On board are NASA astronauts Raja Chari, Tom Marshburn, and Kayla Barron, as well as Matthias Maurer of ESA, or the European Space Agency. On this episode, we're going to hear from each member of the crew and learn a little bit more about them and what they think about their mission. You'll get to hear about their careers, their family, stories of their training, and you'll hear their thoughts about the importance of the mission that they're on, as well as the thoughts on their crewmates. They were a great group to interview, and they had a lot of energy and excitement. And even though three of the four of them will be first-time flyers, you'll learn quickly that they have a lot to bring to the table. So here we go. The Crew 3 astronauts Rajachari, Tom Marshburn, Kayla Barron, and Matthias Maurer. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. There she goes. First up is NASA astronaut Raja Chari, commander of the Crew Dragon Endurance and the Crew 3 mission. Chari is responsible for all phases of flight from launch to re-entry. Once on board station, he'll serve as an Expedition 66 flight engineer. He was born in Milwaukee, but considers Cedar Falls, Iowa his hometown. He's a colonel in the U.S. Air Force and joins the mission with extensive experience as a test pilot. Over his career, he's accumulated more than 2,500 hours of flight time. This will be the first space flight for Chari, who became a NASA astronaut in 2017, and he's also a member of the Artemis team, so he's eligible for an assignment to a future lunar mission. Really enjoy this conversation, so here's a little bit more about Raja Chari. Raja Chari, thanks so much for coming on Houston Weaver Podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here and get to talk about the Crew 3 mission. Yeah, yeah. It's coming right up. Uh, not not too far until you actually launch. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. It's kind of surreal knowing that uh, as we do some of these trips to SpaceX or different training locations, knowing like this is my second to last trip here. This is, it is, yeah, we're counting down to use a really bad pun. Wow. So so after this, so you're in Johnson Space Center now, you go to Johnson Space Center one more time, and then really it's, you're you're getting ready for the mission. Yeah. Yep, we've got uh, yeah two more trips to Hawthorne, one more trip to the Cape, and and yeah we're pretty much in the final stages. Wow! All right. Well, I want to take this time to get to know a little bit more about you. Um, you grew up in uh, is it Cedar Falls, Iowa? Yep. Yeah. So I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but then moved to Cedar Falls really shortly after I was born because uh, my dad got a job there, and then mm-hmm. yeah grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Cool. What was it like? It was a, a mix of a small town and a big city by at least by Iowa standards. Uh, so definitely not a not a farm, but also still had that feeling of you know where the community was tight enough to know you know people knew each other whether it's through church or school, um, but not in a creepy way. <laughs> uh, so, but in the way there where people were interested in your success, whether it was teachers or you know other parents, everyone had an interest in you know the kids succeeding and doing well. Yeah. Um- was there some moment or, or some series of maybe classes or something that really got you interested in, uh, in engineering or, or science kind of field? Yeah, so I went to a place called St. Patrick's School, and I think um, at some point, uh, in you know, I I do have one memory of you know getting new tables and new equipment in the science lab there, and that struck out you know sticks out in my mind. Um, but I think just the 
you know, I was also, you know, I enjoyed doing math at the time. And so I think both those things were kind of a push towards the engineering direction. Um, and I think, you know, my mom has pointed out that I always, always enjoyed space. I made little, uh, you know, little spaceships out of random metal pieces around the house and would try to construct, you know, little airplanes or spaceships and then try to sell them, you know, kind of lemonade style stand <laughs> on the, on the curb. I think only my parents bought them for me, but so some, some early things like that. So what, uh, what was the inspiration for going the military route? For me, it was the idea of, well, two, twofold. One, uh, I really I like the idea of trying to fly. And I think really the, the military piece of that, though, was, you know, I definitely had a, I wouldn't have been able to put my finger on it, I don't think as distinctly until I was more in my 20s. Um, looking back, it's really clear. But I had some of this innate, I don't know, desire or um, thought that I had to give back or I had to serve. And mm. I think it came from, well, I don't think, I know it came from um, now, uh, my dad's upbringing and sort of his background, his journey of, of coming to the U.S. as an immigrant and, you know, and and working his way up, uh, making a, a job and a place um, for himself in a new country after, you know, when I reflect on it, it was a hugely risky move for him to come mm-hmm. uh, start completely over in a new country. And I think, but the fact that that was something you could do um, really made me think that was those kind of values and the idea of having a country and a a culture where you could do that was worth was worth fighting for and preserving. And so I think that was really the reason that the military route appealed to me um, of doing something where I felt like I could give back what I th- felt I had been given. Very cool. Give back and then also pursue that love of flying right. and, and engineering. So tell me about your time in the in the um, Air Force Academy. Uh, so I'd say the Air Force Academy was a, a four year sleep deprivation exercise, basically. <laughs> um, the first year, as I think most people expect, is a, a pretty intense experience. But I think what I took out of the Air Force Academy um, was the idea that I can pretty much do anything or survive just about anything if I just persevere. And um, and I, you know, I think I learned the idea of resilience is where I first got, you know, that sort of drilled into me. Um, and looking at things as half full. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful time to look back on. While I was there, it was not as pleasant. I think if you'd asked me, you know, then I would have given you a different answer um, <laughs> and a list of a litany of complaints. But looking back on it, it's sort of one of those things you realize how formative of a time that was. And uh, I'm glad I'm glad I had that experience. It's definitely colored most of my life after that. It geared you up for being a test pilot. So what was that? What was that like? What do you do as a test pilot? So as a test pilot, I think the easiest uh, analogy I, I use is a translator, and the translator is between the person doing the thing and the person who built the thing. Um, and so in in test pilot world, it's the people who built the plane and the people who are flying the plane. And so. Um, just like if someone was going to test drive a car, they could test drive the car and come back and tell the dealer, like, I don't, I don't like it. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not very actionable. You know, they can't change the car based on, I don't like it. And so for us as test pilots, we're, we're to take it to the next level. Like, okay, I, I don't like this because when, you know, because the human factors interface is bad and here's how you can fix it. So that's sort of our, our job is to live in both those worlds. You were not only that, you were not only a test pilot, but you were a leader as well. You were a flight test squadron commander. You uh, you, you were a colonel. So so um, what was it like, you know, taking on that role, taking on that responsibility um, and, and what you had to do to, to, to master that? I'm glad you asked because we talked about why did I go to the Air Force Academy it was to fly. I think why I stayed in the Air Force it actually became less and less about flying and more and more about people. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, people talk about, 
uh, when you're in the military, like to strive, like you, your your end goal should be to become a commander. And you kind of just start saying that because everyone says you should do that. Um, but I don't think I really realized until I was in it why. And it was amazing. It was exhausting physically, mentally. Um, but it was, I mean, I think my wife would say the same thing. She was just completely exhausted by the end of that tour. It was, you know, I had the squadron and the test force take care of. She had the spouses, the families, you know, it is a 24 seven job and it's not just commanding, you know, the, the actual units actions, but you're taking care of the people. It is a huge family. Uh, and that's why it's so rewarding. And, you know, whether it's because you're mentoring young airmen, um, you know, and, and helping them, whether it's, you know, coming up with a financial plan or, you know, dealing with sickness or injuries or, their job performance, you know, it's, it is all these things across a huge spectrum and it's so rewarding to do, but so, so exhausting. So in the military, we generally only have people to be commanders for two years. And I realized about 18 months into it, like there's a reason because you could only handle this for about two years and then you need to just decompress for a little bit. Um, yeah. but it, yeah, it was, uh, I loved it. I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, so then what made you, um, start considering being an astronaut? So I think uh, I'd always had in the back of my mind being an astronaut would be a great thing to do. I don't think I thought it was really realistic until I was a test pilot and then and saw that other test pilots had gone on to become astronauts. Um, and that's at the point I think I started really pursuing it. And then the other aha moment for me was uh, when I went to do interviews in 2013 at NASA, I was blown away by the people at Johnson Space Center and just the interactions, like the other people interviewing, but also the people. Mm. We went to some of the training facilities and every place I went, I, you know, I could see myself like this is a place I would like to come to work. This is a, uh, you know, a great culture, a great workforce. Um, and then I started thinking about my time in the Air Force and also a very high performing organization. And it, but it dawned on me that the reason I loved the Air Force wasn't it, I liked flying, don't get me wrong, but it was really about the people. Yeah. Uh, and that's what made me realize, oh, man, I could. there's a chance to do this job. Uh, because in the Air Force, at some point, I have to stop flying. You know, At some point, I'm going to get too old. Um, but you're never too old to hang out with really amazing people. And so um, that really appealed to me to come to NASA. And the mission is, you know, clearly, <laughs> the reason I get up in the morning is to help with human exploration, solve humanity problems. It's a pretty good reason to get up and come to work. And I feel like you got, um, I mean, just from talking to some of your crewmates, it seems like you guys as a crew really get along together. So in terms of that people aspect, it seems like you guys are really a good unit. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I mean, obviously I would not say don't send us to space, but I would also be just the fact that I get to train with these other three people and yeah. uh, and go on, you know, go on these trips to Russia, to Hawthorne, to SpaceX and, and have these experiences. That in itself is great. I mean, I would, again, I'm not saying don't launch us, please launch us, but... <laughs> If we weren't to launch in October or November, I would actually still be pretty happy about uh, about the year. What are you looking forward to most when you're up in space? What's really some of the things that you're really, really looking forward to? I think the things I'm uh, most excited about are, you know, learning and basically talking with the scientists as we're doing their research for them. And so trying to actually mm -hmm. understand what, you know, what is this helping with or what are you, you know, um, so our days are packed with essentially setting up experiments, you know, getting the results, you know, and then setting up the next one and they're tearing down something. And so I think, you know, once we're actually on the loops with them, so in training, we don't do a whole lot with the actual scientists because they never know exactly which ones we're going to be doing. And so that's one thing I'm looking forward to is once I'm actually on the loops or with the radio, um, when you're on the headset talking to them, like, here's what I'm doing, and then have a chance to talk with them afterwards, like, what what is that, you know, what is that going to teach you or what, what's the, what are the implications? And sometimes they don't even know. Like sometimes it's, you know, we don't know. We're trying this new protein and who knows what, you know, vaccine or, you know, 
treatment it could be used in. But that's the idea, is it's a it's a platform to explore right. all the possibilities. There's microgravity, the only place you could take that out of the equation. Let's see what can happen. Exactly. Yeah, very cool. You got a lot to do, Raja. So what's some of the you said you said you got some trips coming up until actual launch and then you got launch day itself. Yep. So so what's coming up? So what we got coming up, uh, we have two more trips to SpaceX out in uh, Hawthorne and out there we'll focus on crew responses to off nominal situations. And so out in Hawthorne, they have a whole capsule simulator. So that's one of the few places we can do the physical tasks that are associated with those things, like getting the suit on in the capsule and and reconfiguring it and stowing things that might be out and uh, pressurizing the suit, uh, all the things that might happen in the event of an emergency. Um, we'll spend a week at the Cape doing water survival. And so that's mm. all having to do with if the capsule came down and we had to get out early or we came down in a place where we're not expecting to come down, how do you get out of the water or out of the capsule into the water, uh, set up the life raft, all that all that kind of stuff. Um, also, while we're down at the Cape, we'll also deal with um, emergency egress from the pad, the launch pad and the rocket. So if there's anything on launch day that, you know, they want us to get out of the, the rocket and ourselves, normally they would come unstrap us and do all that for a launch scrub. But if there's anything that it's more time critical, we have to be able to do that ourselves. So basically dress rehearsals of all those things um, and very similar to the, the military and flight test world. Like, we don't think any of those things will happen. We hope they don't happen, but all of our training is focused on what if it does happen? Like, let's just make sure we've, we've, trained and prepared for all of that. You got to be prepared for it. That's yeah. right. Lots to do. And I'll let you get to it. Raja Chari, thanks so much for coming Thanks on. very much. Thanks for having me on. Next is NASA astronaut Tom Marshburn, pilot of the Crew Dragon spacecraft and second in command for the mission. He's responsible for spacecraft systems and performance. On board station, he'll serve as an Expedition 66 flight engineer until he takes over as command of the International Space Station. Marshburn is a Statesville, North Carolina native who became an astronaut in 2004. Prior to serving in the astronaut corps, the medical doctor served as flight surgeon at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston and later became medical operations lead for the International Space Station. The Crew-3 mission will be his third visit to the space station and his second long-duration mission. And the Crew Dragon will be the third spacecraft for Marshburn to fly in after the space shuttle and the Russian Soyuz. He previously served as a crew member of STS-127 in 2009 and Expeditions 34 and 35, which concluded in 2013. A great guy to talk to. So here's Tom Marshburn. Tom Marshburn, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, launch is right around the corner. How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Oh, feeling ready to go. I think we all feel ready to launch tomorrow, but we know there's some <laughs> uh, buffing around the edges we still need to do. Um, and so we're, we're excited to finish up the next couple of months. It feels like it's, we're going to launch tomorrow and this time is going to go by fast. What do you have left to do in this next couple of months to gear up for launch? We have a, a few more training sessions. You know, the training ramps up to where we're finally at the stage where we as a crew train together, mm -hmm. not just myself and the commander. Um, and so we are learning our choreography, our communication skills amongst the whole crew, but also wrapping in mission control, both at SpaceX and at Houston for mm -hmm. the launch and, and landing portions of the flight. Okay. So we're, that's still to come. We'll, we'll have a couple of uh, NBL runs or Nutribuoyancy Lab spacewalk training runs, mm -hmm. um, and then a whole slew of things, last minute <laughs> touches on certain things that required uh, up-to-date motor skills, up-to-date knowledge. Try to squeeze in as much as possible. Before right. Everybody flight. wants to get a piece of the crew before, for good reason, <laughs> say, don't forget X. Um, practice this one more time. That's so. right. That's right. 
Um, I want to get a, to know a little bit more about you with this with this time that we have. So I want to start with some of your um, some of your early life. Uh, we we got we just got off the camera talking about some of the same same stuff. But growing up in it was North Carolina, right? Right. And being an outdoorsy kind of person, and your right. inspiration for for space. So uh, small town, North Carolina, significantly the last of seven uh, kids. Uh, had a lot of people to look up to. Uh, a lot of things that, uh, examples that I wanted to follow or not follow. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody growing up as teenagers and such. Yeah. But, um, had a farm in North Georgia that, uh, where we had a chance to, to really explore and go off into the woods and, uh, live outdoors for a while. And that really translated into a love of, of the outside. I became a backpacker and a climber and which was just a, um, uh, just a first step in the whole idea of putting a human being out into a uh, an austere and maybe dangerous place. So mm -hmm. space and learning about space became the most exciting aspect of that that I could imagine. And so the way that you decided to pursue that love of space was through physics. Why physics? Physics uh, for me was the most basic science. It mm -hmm. was the science that explained it all. Everything else seemed to build up from physics. So uh, I loved asking those deep, sometimes philosophical questions, and uh, that was why I fell in love with it. But then, so you, you started pursuing that in college. Uh, your, your bachelor's, I believe, and your master's were in physics, and then at some point you make the switch to uh, uh, medicine. Yeah, I, I switched to medicine when I found out that after spending enough time in, in the laboratories and engineering, uh, engineering work, that I was missing uh, more contact with people. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed talking to people, uh, getting to know them better. I ha had friends that were medical students. Of course, my family was um, familiar with medicine, so it was not a, such a strange idea to go off into medicine. But I figured that maybe was where my best skills were, what I could be best at. And so I applied to medical school, got in and made the transition from this purely analytical world to understanding the human being. And that was a fascinating switch. But that love of space never went away. And at some point you were able to merge the two worlds. You got into to medicine and then next thing you know, you're working at NASA. Yeah. Um, the space interest went dormant for a while. Hmm. Medicine is so intense that uh, you really have to put all your brain and all of your time and, and your body into it. But after I had finished my training, I was in practice in Seattle. I got a, a letter from a former colleague who said, hey, I just heard NASA has this new training program uh, for turning outside doctors into uh, flight surgeons to take care of astronauts and pilots. And I thought, well, you know, I used to be interested in space. I keep thinking about how can I get into it? This seems like a perfect open door. So I had to apply, uh, but I got into the first uh, class of the uh, Space Medicine Fellowship at NASA. Very cool. So um, from there, you worked at NASA. You got to learn from a lot of cool people, travel to a lot of cool places as a flight surgeon. At some point, you were thinking, hey, I can actually be an astronaut. When that come up? My uh, desire to become an astronaut kind of grew during that time. The opportunity arose as soon as I got here. And people said, hey, you're a doc. Why don't you apply? So I applied, and I did not get in. And so... <laughs> Over the years, uh, it was three more applications, but uh, my fascination with space, my desire to uh, work with these people that at that moment were my colleagues and, and uh, patients, but to work with them in space grew uh, quite a bit. 
And so after my fourth application, I got in. Finally, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then you got to, you know, through a lot of training, you got to experience a flight on the shuttle, STS-127. So tell me about that. Right. So um, five years after we were selected, I finally had a chance to fly. The uh, mission was very, very intense. Uh, 16 days, 11 days docked to, the docked to the space station, most of that time doing robotic operations, five EVAs. I mean, something was going on all the time. Um, it was uh, just a sprint. We were busy all the time. Um, even if you had time to sleep, it was hard to sleep because your mind was buzzing with uh, what you had to do and, and the work that had been done. And of course, it was uh, my first spacewalk, and then I had two more after that, which uh, certainly kind of wraps up your whole brain. It's hard to think about anything uh, right before and, or right after a spacewalk uh, other than getting that done. Especially with a with a flight that's just so jam-packed with activities. You got to do the spacewalk, and then you got to go on to the next thing, right? Right. As a matter of fact, it all stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Also, if we, if we hit a stopping place and we couldn't continue on, we only had a few days to solve it because the other spacewalks had to happen in order to get the work done before we came home. So it was very intense. The ground team was working like crazy if we ran into a problem. Uh, some bolt was stuck or some mm -hmm. um, object we had in our hands we couldn't fit in the right place. Uh, we had to come up with a, an answer right away. Now that was different from your long duration mission. A lot of people compared instead of the sprint, they call it a marathon. Now what was what was that? This is Expedition 3435. Right, right. Went up there. Um, space Station has been growing in its capability to do science, and it was uh, in this this really exciting phase of uh, some experiments um, with uh, fluids and uh, material science. And I was a guinea pig as well, uh, to where we were we were. Uh, had a, had a fairly punishing schedule. By the end of the work week, we were tired and occasionally working on the weekends. And the station has continued to grow since then. Um, didn't have a spacewalk planned, but at the very end, we had an emergency spacewalk that we had to perform. It was only three days before I was supposed to come home. So that was a, a great surprise that that had happened and a surprise that they were going to allow us right before we came home to get that job done and do that spacewalk. And so you're going to be returning for another long-duration mission. Now, right. that one was, was the Soyuz. This time you're going on the SpaceX Dragon. So how have you been gearing up for this mission? Uh, just like for the other missions, uh, getting ready for spaceflight, I think humans kind of know how to get somebody ready. You do mm -hmm. some academics, you get in the simulator early, you start working with your immediate crew, and then you build the team as you get closer to launch. There are certain uh, motor skills you got to know, like uh, you know, spacewalking, keep that up. Um, there's some science experiments that require motor skills that we have to maintain. Robotics operations, how to fly that Canada arm uh, so that you can grab satellites, that your cargo satellites out of, the, out of space and dock them to the station. Uh, so you're keeping all those skills going while you're also learning what science is going to be there so you can operate on a day-to-day -day basis effectively. Now, you have... Uh three rookie crew members that are flying with you. And I say rookie, but just talking to you recently, they're all just super sharp people and they're all very skilled, but you're the only person that has that experience that can share that knowledge of what it's like to fly in space. So um, how have you been doing that with your crewmates? So um, making sure they understand uh, at each stage of flight what our, our limitations might be. Mm. What challenges are we might have um, from a physiologic standpoint? What it's going to feel like? What it's going to feel like to live there? Uh, what are their expectations for what they think they're going to get done? 
and want to make sure they can get everything done that they want. Um, but uh, I'll be there to help, uh, certainly. Uh, I know how I'm going to react. My body's going to react when I get to zero G. I know what my limitations are going to be. And so hopefully I can help them if we have any gaps that need to be filled uh, once we get up there. But um, also helping the crew. I, we're all very good at this anyway, but helping to make sure the crew has, we have a good culture, mm-hmm. um, that we are, number one, that we're safe. No question everybody's going to want to get the job done, but I want to make sure everybody has a good time too. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're going to. You have a pretty pretty good crew with you, and it sounds like you guys get along. Yeah, we do. And that's one of the values of training together, um, not just in the simulator, not just uh, during the workday, but getting out together, uh, having dinner together. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely essential to get to know each other. Very cool. Well, Tom, I wish you the best on your upcoming mission. Godspeed. Thanks for hey, coming thanks on. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Next, we have NASA astronaut Kayla Barron a mission specialist for Crew-3. As a mission specialist, she will work closely with the commander and the pilot to monitor the spacecraft during the dynamic launch and re-entry phases of flight. Once aboard the station, she'll become a flight engineer for Expedition 66 for her first trip to space. Barron was born in Pocatello, Idaho, but considers Richland, Washington her hometown. She earned a bachelor's degree in systems engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland in 2010, and a master's degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Cambridge in England in 2011 as Gates Cambridge Scholar. Lieutenant Commander Barron earned her submarine warfare officer qualification and deployed three times while serving aboard the USS Maine. At the time of her selection as an astronaut candidate in 2017, she was serving as the flag aide to the superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy. What an incredible person to talk to and seemingly always full of energy. Here's Kayla Barron. Kayla Barron, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, launch is right around the corner. How are you feeling? Good. I mean, it is coming up really quick. I think for me as a rookie, it doesn't always feel totally real. You know, I've been in training uh, since I got selected in 2017, and we do a lot of awesome simulated training. And it's easy to forget sometimes that, like, I'm going to be on the top of a rocket in a couple months going to space. (laughs) So I think it kind of hits me in waves where I'll have this moment, you know, like the first time I touched our capsule at SpaceX or certain moments in training where it just hits me in this really emotional moment, like, oh, I'm going, it's real, I'm doing this thing. Yeah. Um, And then it kind of fades back into this, like, I don't know, is this real life sort of pinch me attitude? (laughs) Well, I want to, I want to understand how you got to this moment, how you became an astronaut to, to go on this mission on the SpaceX Dragon to um, go to the International Space Station, conduct all kinds of great science. Well, going back to your childhood and your early interest, I want to start with your interest in going into the military. I think it's an awesome story of how, you know, you, you could have pursued a lot of different things, but there was that moment that inspired you that says a military career is something that I want to do. Yeah, I mean, it was something I started thinking about from a pretty young age. I think about 12 or 13, mm-hmm. I first started, you know, having an awareness of what it meant to serve in the military. I have some extended family in the military. I lived near the Air Force Academy during um, the part of my childhood when I lived in Colorado. And That was kind of something in the back of my mind that I was thinking about maybe going forward. Um, And then at the beginning of my eighth grade years, 14 years old, 9-11 happened. 
Uh, and that was just like this hugely eye-opening moment for me at a super developmental time in my life, you know, mm -hmm. just starting to understand how the world works, how complicated, how scary it can be. Um, and that really traumatic moment got my attention. But then as I watched our country come together to respond to that super tragic event and really unite behind what it means to be an American, uh, for me cemented my desire to want to serve. You know, I wanted to continue my education. I was interested in engineering, but I also was interested in how to challenge myself to develop as a leader, how to be a good person, how to support the people around me. And I was thinking about, you know, what can I do with my life that will have the biggest impact? How can I make the world a better place? And for me, it felt like the military was the right place to start that journey. Um, and that's how I ended up at the Naval Academy. So what were the things you were doing at the Naval Academy first couple you know, years? What were you doing? Yeah, you know, at the Naval Academy, we kind of have like this three-part mission, the moral, mental, and physical. So the moral mission, it's all about developing yourself as a person, a leader, a teammate, you know, being a person of integrity, making the right decision even when nobody's watching, working as a team, developing your leadership skills. The mental part, for me, I decided to study engineering. So I studied systems engineering, which at the Naval Academy is control systems and robotics, a really integrated view of engineering, um, and got a lot of awesome experience in the classroom and in the laboratories there. And then the physical mission, I got to run cross country and track at the Naval Academy, and my teammates were really the core of my social group. Um, and I got to learn how to push myself beyond my limits. You know, the you think you're capable of running a certain time in a certain race, and then you find out like how to push through those challenging moments and beyond into new capabilities. Um, and so those sort of major things combined helped me prepare myself to serve in the military after graduation. That was uh, that's perfect because then you 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 had all these skills. I wonder at what point though you started thinking, um, you know, I'd like to I'd like to pursue going into a submarine. Uh, when when did that start coming up? Pretty quickly after I got there, when I first showed up, I I knew for sure I wanted to be a naval aviator. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Yeah, and. The cool thing about the Naval Academy is officers from every single part of the Navy serve there, and we also get a chance to experience those communities during our summer training. And so pretty quickly, I found myself drawn to submarine warfare officers as mentors. I just really connected with the way they saw the world. They're nerds, funny, you know, kind <laughs> of sarcastic. Um, and it just seemed like a good fit from that standpoint. But what really cemented it was my chance to go underway on a submarine during summer training. Hmm. Uh, we actually got to go go out, submerge, kind of do a day's worth of operations. And I was so impressed by the sailors in the submarine force. You know, the Naval Academy, you're going to be commissioned as a junior officer, a junior leader in the military. And the people you're leading are the enlisted sailors or Marines in the Navy. Um, and these sailors were so smart so intrinsically motivated. They really cared about what they were doing. And I could tell that they held the junior officers to a really high standard, but also, on the other hand, were willing to invest in shaping those junior officers into the kinds of leaders they'd be willing to follow. And so it just seemed like a super challenging operational environment to operate a reactor or drive a submarine with this really complicated equipment, really complicated team, but also a really supportive team to help me develop along the way. Seems like that people aspect is something that's super important to you. Like it's, it, you, it seems like you you have a lot of passion for, you know, the the Naval Academy taught you a lot of good skills about uh, systems engineering. You pursued uh, nuclear engineering. You learned a lot. But it seems like 
that people aspect, just being with the right people, surrounded by smart, driven people is something that's pretty important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been the core of where I found myself, whether that was in athletics growing up, in my studies, mm -hmm. my family, the people I surrounded myself with. Um, I, I'm always looking for ways to improve and become a better version of myself because I want to figure out how to make my career, my life, my relationships count. I want to leave the world better than I found it. I want to serve. And so to figure out how to do that, I think you need to be around a supportive team who's going to push you, challenge you, call you out when you make mistakes or have done something wrong and also help you learn how to be better. And so for me, I get the most energy from being on an awesome team. And I love working in nerdy engineering operational environments <laughs> if I can with those teams. But for me, the people come first. I loved your story. We were talking a little bit earlier about, um, you know, when you went to, when you started thinking about becoming a NASA astronaut and you're surrounded, you know, in the interview process, you're surrounded mm -hmm. by all these super smart people, right? This, yeah. um, and you said you had uh, this, this feeling of an imposter syndrome, like mm -hmm. what am I doing here? But I wonder, you know, if you can a little share that experience one, but then also if you got that same sense that you're talking about of being in this nerdy, you know, environment mm -hmm. if, and you could, you know, call this place home. Yeah, you know, I think when I first showed up for interviews, I really felt that imposter syndrome, like like you mentioned, you just meet the other candidates yeah. and they're so smart, so accomplished. They've done all these amazing things, been on all these crazy adventures. And I was just like, I don't, what am I doing here? You know, the, <laughs> even the idea of applying to be an astronaut was a pretty new idea to me. So mm -hmm. I hadn't had a lot of time to internalize all of the details of what it took to be an astronaut, what it took to get selected. And so I was kind of just like jumping in straight into the deep end. And for me, though, meeting those other candidates, I was like, wow, I don't know. They might have called me by mistake. I don't know if I'm supposed to be here right now. Um, but it also instilled sort of like a healthy fatalism, sort of like, hmm. you know, I'm just going to be myself. I don't know exactly what they saw in my application, why they were interested in meeting me. But if I try to be authentic, genuine, share who I am, good and bad. You know, if the committee of all of these fantastic, accomplished people around NASA in the astronaut and outside the astronaut office think I'll be a good fit, they're probably right. And if they think I'm a bad fit or I'm not ready yet, they're probably right about that too. Um, so I kind of took a deep breath and just decided to be myself. Um, but now that I'm here, to your point, it's just a, a group of super like-minded people. Hmm. Everyone at NASA, it's just such an inspiring place to work. Everyone cares about the mission. Everyone cares about each other. And everyone cares up, cares about showing up to be the best version of themselves, to put themselves behind that mission, to improve every single day. And so it's impossible to come here and not be inspired by the people around you. Like even if you're having a sort of a bad day driving into work, maybe you missed your coffee or whatever, you show up <laughs> and the energy is palpable. Like you feel it and you wanna show up for your team. Um, so it's a great group of people to work with. And you, you got the astronaut job, you went through the training and now you get a new set of great people and that is your, your crew. Um, what are you looking forward to doing with your with this crew, Crew 3, on the space station? Tell me a little bit about them. I'm really excited to work with the other people on <laughs> Crew 3. Like I was so pumped when I found out I was going to be a part of that team because 
it's just an incredible group of people with very different experiences and perspectives that mm -hmm. I think are really complementary. You know, Raja, he's an Air Force test pilot. He has a ton of leadership experience in the Air Force and really brings an awesome operational perspective, but a really amazing disposition as a person, a teammate, and a leader as well. He's great at giving and taking feedback. He brings out the best in everyone around him and incorporates everybody, really utilizes the skills and perspectives of everyone on our team. Tom, he is one of the most experienced astronauts we have at NASA. He's flown to space on the space shuttle, on the Soyuz to the space station, and now he's flying on Dragon. So he has years and years of experience, and he's worked with a ton of people across NASA and across our office, has a lot of unique perspectives, and he also just is an incredible mentor. He's really invested in sharing that experience with us, but he doesn't try to say like, oh, you have to do it this way because that's the way I do it. <laughs> like he really has gotten to know us. He's a great listener, and he has a way of applying his experience in a way that will work for you. Um, and then, of course, Matthias, our partnership with the European Space Agency, he's from Germany. He's part of our crew um, and getting to know him throughout training. I really, really love working with him because he thinks differently than anyone else I've worked with at NASA. He really has a way of breaking things down to their fundamental elements, understanding one, how things work, and two, exactly what is try we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And he has a way of figuring out new tools, techniques, ways of thinking about things. And so I feel like he's really expanded my skill set as an astronaut because he I've incorporated a lot of his techniques and ways of thinking into how I do things. So what do you have left on the agenda to do with this crew to get ready for launch day? You know, launch day is coming up pretty quick, yeah. um, but we still have some pretty important training. Uh, we're gonna head to Florida, to Kennedy Space Center to really see what the launch pad configuration is gonna be like, how we're gonna get into the vehicle. We're gonna practice getting out of the capsule in the water in case we had to do that in an unsupported landing site. Uh, we have more emergency training in the Dragon and, here, and um, for the space station mm -hmm. and our mock-ups here. Um, and then we all have a little bit of spacewalk training left, some robotics training left, um, and also just getting our lives together so we can leave the planet for <laughs> true, six months. True, Lots to do, Kayla, and I will let you get to it. Thanks so much for coming on Houston Thanks Robotics. for having me. Last but not least, we have ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer, who is also a mission specialist for Crew-3, working with the commander and pilot to monitor the spacecraft during the dynamic launch and re-entry phases of flight. He will also become a long-duration crew member aboard the International Space Station. Maurer comes from Zankt Wendel in the German state of Saarland. Before becoming an astronaut, Maurer held a number of engineering and research roles, both in a university setting and at ESA. In 2016, Maurer spent 16 days on an undersea mission as part of NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations, or NEMO, space analog. Like Chari and Baron, Maurer will be making his first trip to space with the Crew-3 mission. Overall, a wonderful person with a fascinatingly unique perspective. Here's Matthias Maurer. Matthias Maurer, thanks so much for coming on Houston Rebel Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, your launch is right around the corner, Matthias. How are you feeling? You excited? Yeah, yeah, kind of. But I think the excitement will come on, on launch day. That's right. We are recording this pretty pretty early. So there's, there, there's still a lot of work for you to do, a lot more training that you have to accomplish. Um, I want to get to that, Matthias. Before I do, I'm going to take a step from the very beginning. I want to learn more about you. Uh, tell me about where you were born, what you studied, some of your early life. Yeah, so I was born in Germany and I grew up in Germany. I uh, um, did a civil service as a um, paramedic. And then I studied in different countries, so in 
France, in the UK, in Spain. So it was all part of an integrated European study program in material science. And uh, that's how I discovered that traveling and learning languages and learning about different cultures, it's a real enrichment. So you're a, you would describe yourself as a people person then? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, what's been your experiences traveling around and learning those new languages? What has it taught you that you've implemented in your life? Well, it's like um, the main lesson learned is like there are a lot of different solutions to the same problem. And huh. when you grow up in Germany, it's like you're kind of it has to be done this way. And but uh, looking back from the outside and traveling countries like India, for example, mm. you find that there are very uh, unique solutions, very creative solutions to the same types of problems. So it's uh, it broadens the horizons and um, it also helps to see the world a little bit more globally. Very interesting. So what's, what's interesting is you, you're describing yourself as a people person. Um, I wonder how that folds into some of your studies, because you went for material science. So um, tell me about some of the things. What interested you in materials, and what are some of the cool people that you got to meet along the way? Well, actually, my initial interest was aerospace engineering. Oh, interesting. But kind of like, it's a, it's a bit longer story, but when I started studying, it was uh, the time when the Berlin Wall came down. Mm. And so basically, I wanted to sign up in Berlin to study aer um, aeronautics. Um, but uh, these were the years when everything changed. And so basically, um, I was kind of, I had to choose a different type of study, at least for one year. Um, so I started um, material science engineering and the guys at the university who told me like, okay, next year you may then be able to switch to um, aerospace engineering in Berlin. Uh, told me like, it's, it's all the same for the first two, three years. It's uh, basically engineering. And, uh, but then I discovered material science is really interesting. I didn't know anything about it. And basically the, the, the origin of innovation is 70% in the material that you choose. So, um, well, I started it and I got so fascinated that I decided like, okay, that's exactly what I want to study. It's probably much, much better than aerospace engineering. <laughs> well, you studied it a lot, right? You got a, yes. you got a PhD in materials, right? Yes, I studied in several countries mm -hmm. and I got in total three engineering diplomas in material science, material engineering, materials technology, and also a PhD. Very good. Um, you, you threw in a little economics in there as well, right? That was an add-on because uh, oh, interesting. it's like I was dreaming about like one day I want to like start my own company. Hmm. And so when I studied in France, for example, um, economics is part of the studies. And I like this aspect because in Germany, when you study an engineering title, you, you never get into contact with economics. But I feel like when you want to start a company, you should also know about what's important to also sell your product. Mm. So I thought like that's helpful for to become successful as an engineer. And um, so I added also economics then as an add-on. Very good. So I wonder where astronaut comes in because it seems like you were thinking about a lot of different career paths sort of along your journey. It doesn't. It's not like I mean a lot of the stories I hear are I always wanted to be an astronaut. That doesn't seem to be the case for you. Yeah. So as a kid, I grew up in an area where we had a lot of fighter planes um, mm. flying across Germany. So 
lot of people know Rammstein. It's the biggest American airbase outside of the US. And so uh, I grew up around 50, 60 kilometers from there. Oh. So I watched all these people flying uh, up in the sky and thought like, wow, that's good fun. I want to become a pilot when I grow up. Um, and later on, it's like I learned how to fly a glider plane. Um, so being always fascinated by flying and, and exploring the third dimension of our planet. But uh, I also was interested in the technology. So that was why I decided to become an engineer and to do research. And um, later on, I also combined my material science background with the paramedic background that I had when I developed new materials for medical applications. So I developed blood filters hmm. um, before becoming an astronaut. So, um, yeah, I was always interested in a lot of stuff and I wanted to dig into the details and to learn about what is behind. Okay. Well, tell me about your selection when, when you started applying and then your interesting path to actually come on to ESA as an astronaut. Yes. So the selection started in 2008. <clears throat> and um, I remember, well, I came back from work, like developing my blood filters uh, and switched on the TV in the evening and learned on the news, like ESA is looking for new astronauts. Hmm. And I thought like, hang on. It's like I was... I wanted to study um, aerospace engineering before, and um, I'm fascinated by flying and technology. I'm an engineer and I love science. So combining all these facts, I thought like an astronaut today does exactly that. He works or he, she works with a lot of like uh, technology on the brink of what is possibly um, what is possible. And we uh, do a lot of experiments in space. We work in international teams. I love working in international teams and well, the excitement and the adventure that you have when flying to space. So this is a very unique package. And I thought like, wow, that's finally probably the combination of all my interest in one job. And so you and that's why that's why I applied. Very good. And it took you a while to actually get on to, to ESA, right? Oh yeah, the selection took um, one year, mm -hmm. and after one year, from the eight and a half thousand Europeans that applied, wow. only ten persons um, passed all exams, all tests, and were considered to be suitable as astronaut. But then the director general of ESA told us, um, guys, I only have six tickets, and uh, I need to choose four persons, um, four of you who will not become astronaut. And so, Matthias, you're unfortunately one of them. Uh. But I want you to work for ESA because I think you guys are all very intelligent, very suitable persons, and I want you to work for ESA. My three colleagues who were also not taken decided, no, either astronaut or nothing. Hmm. And so they continued in their job. I was the only one who uh, accepted this offer. I started working at the European Astronaut Center in the beginning um, as crew support and Eurocom. Eurocom is like the equivalent of a Capcom. Okay. And uh, after two years, I changed into a more management role. I was responsible for the, um, the evolution of the European Astronaut Center. So that's when we started also talking to our colleagues in China, maybe to bring in China into the international community, but also um, developing EAC towards moon exploration. Hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's a lot of cooperation with universities, with scientists, but also people within ESA. Very, Very cool. exciting job. Yeah. So, Matthias, how'd you go from there to becoming an astronaut? 
Well, in 2015, the International Space Station program was extended for more years. And so the director general came back to us and said, like, I got more tickets to space and uh, I actually could hire one more astronaut. Are you still interested? What a question. Of course you were. <laughs> now, you're an explorer at heart. You got to do a lot of cool things. You're about to launch to space, so you can call yourself an astronaut. But you're also an aquanaut and a cavanaut. Can you tell me about those experiences? Yes, part of the training um, that we uh, are able to do is we go down into a cave. That's an ESA training. Um, we live six days, six nights in a cave system. We explore this cave system. It's uh, between 10, 20 kilometers long. So much, much uh, deeper and longer than we actually can explore in these six days. And it's a training that is aiming at exploration, but at the same time at um, like strengthening your interpersonal skills mm. to discover how you are perceived by your teammates, your crewmates uh, as member of a team. So you actually work your leadership skills, you work your followership skills, and um, you learn how to work with people in a challenging environment, with people that speak different languages, people that have a different cultural background, and how to give feedback when things go wrong, and also how to request help when you need help. Hmm. So it's a very interesting training. And it also allows us access to a very hidden place, a beauty, um, like a beautiful place. These cave systems are so beautiful that you sometimes think like, wow, a master artist created this and in, in it's all hidden underground and um, not accessible to uh, normal people. That's right. The same I discovered living in the station, like on the bottom of the sea as a part of the uh, Nemo. Uh, training. Mm -hmm. I was an aquanaut during 16 days and we explored Mars. So that was the analog simulation that we ran. This station is 20 meters below the surface of the sea. And um, so on the bottom of the sea, we live there and we explore the surface, a new environment. And I remember the very first day it fe felt kind of awkward having my helmet on, a helmet that actually is like locked onto my my head so I cannot take it off. So mm. in the beginning you think like, oh, what will happen if I feel uncomfortable, if I get kind of a feeling of panic? But obviously it's a test, like if you panic in this situation, you're not suitable for space. Uh -huh. And um, then you walk out there and you concentrate, okay, do I fully understand all the the, the mechanisms, the technology, what happens if, how can I do, how can I rescue myself, how can I help my colleague if he or she has a problem. The second day I went out there and walking on the surface of Mars or on the bottom of the sea in our case, I felt like, wow, this is a completely new environment. This is so beautiful. And, and I felt like this is my new environment. I, I belong here. I'm part of this ecosystem and all the fish that fly by or swim by, they observe me and, and I enjoyed the beauty of this. And it was kind of a bizarre um, sensation, like between the first and the second day. In the first day, I was fully concentrated on myself, on being safe. On the second day, I accepted being there. And um, it was very interesting to see that the human brain is so flexible and so fast in in 
adapting to a new environment. Very good. And all now that all the training, those experiences and all the training that you've been doing so far is going to help you prepare for this mission on the Crew Dragon, Crew 3, going to the International Space Station for a long time. So can you tell me about some of your objectives there? What are you going to be doing when you're on board? Well, the, the flight to the International Space Station, I hope that it will be uh, very straightforward. The mm -hmm. capsule is highly automated, so there's very little for us to do actually in a nominal situation. We have to monitor that everything goes according to the plan. Mm -hmm. uh, after 24 hours, we hopefully, hopefully dock to the International Space Station and start our roughly six months uh, science program up there. Um, I bring around 35 European experiments to the International Space Station and uh, counting also the American, the Canadian, the Japanese experiments. I hope to participate in roughly 100 to 150 different experiments. Some of them will be unique, only run once or twice, and some of them are a continuation of what my colleagues have started several years ago. Because in life sciences, you also need some statistics, so we repeat um, like many times the same experiment. We hopefully have also the opportunity to see the station grow. We get new modules. The Russians want to bring two new modules. One of these modules carries the European robotic arm. And uh, that's kind of like exciting hardware that we developed in Europe. Um, it's similar to the Canadian robotic arm in kind of like performances, a bit smaller, shorter. Um, but okay, it will not be able to uh, to catch capsules that are sent up uh, to, with resupplies. But okay, it's a European technology that we want to check out in space and, and see how it performs. Then we have several spacewalks that hopefully will be upcoming. Um, and we will also see different capsules coming. We will see the, the Boeing capsule flying to the International Space Station. We will see spaceflight participants coming with the Russian Soyuz capsule, but also with the, the Dragon capsule. So lots of people, lots of experiments, and lots of excitement. It's lots of excitement. Wow, there's a lot that's going to happen in your mission. That is for sure. And you get to do it with three NASA crewmates. Um, tell me about your your crew, uh, how, how you guys all work together. And you're going to be able to do all of this together. So how would you describe yourself as a crew? I think we are an extremely homogeneous crew. Cool. So we are three rookies, but rookie sounds like uh, as we are beginners and actually looking at my colleagues, uh, Roger and, and Kayla, they are absolutely experienced operators in piloting very sophisticated planes, in piloting or operating a nuclear submarine. So I, I would say anything but a rookie to them. Um, <laughs> probably I'm the only rookie. Um, Tom Mashburn, he has been twice to space. Uh, he, uh, before becoming an astronaut, he worked already as a crew surgeon uh, in the in the spaceflight program. So he has seen a lot, a lot of different crews, astronauts, different problems. Um, so he prepared us. He helped us to um, like grow together as a team, mm -hmm. to be prepared for certain situations that might come. And um, so I think I'm extremely happy with my crew. Um, they're an excellent bunch of people. Uh, I enjoy every day of working with them, training with them, 
and I think we will have a very good time in space. <laughs> well, you're a people person. You you love exploring new cultures, and that's what that's what's great about the International Space Station. You described all the things the Russians are doing. You have a NASA crewmates, and you're going to see people from all over the world, really, with these with these tourists and, and private astronauts, um, more NASA astronauts. It's it's going to be an incredible time, all because of international collaboration. You being a part of this now, and this is part of your mission. How how do you view that the international, the commercial cooperation, this era that you're going to be a part of right now? Well, I'm very happy to see that our cooperation is actually growing. So from the space agencies that started the International Space Station program, now also like having more and more commercial partners in there, it shows to me that um, we are on, on the correct path, on the right path. It's a space program gets more and more robust, the more actors we have. And the more clever people we have, the better our technology will become and the more hardware we have and the more exciting um, new destinations we can fly to. So I'm very excited to see also the flights to the moon upcoming, mm -hmm. the um, Deep Space Gateway station like coming um, to fruition. And so we have exciting, exciting times ahead. What a, what a cool time to be a part of. Matthias Maurer, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. It's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you for having me. All right, that is all four crew members of Crew 3. I hope uh, you enjoyed the conversations and diving deep into some of their background. It was really a pleasure to get to talk to them, uh, and they're going to be launching here very, very soon, uh, at least at the time of this recording. It should be tomorrow from the time that this uh, podcast is released, but always stay tuned for the latest TV schedule on NASA.gov. You can engage with us and the Crew 3 mission by joining us on social and using the hashtag LaunchAmerica. Uh, if you love podcasts, we're one of many. Go to nasa.gov slash podcast to find all the different ones we have across the agency as well as our full catalog of episodes. You can listen to all of them in no particular order. We're at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to talk to us, just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. The interviews uh, used in this episode were recorded in the summer of 2021. Thanks to the podcast team, as always, Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito. And again, thanks to Raja Chari, Tom Marshburn, Kayla Barron, and Matthias Maurer for their time in the studio to share their knowledge and thoughts with the world prior to launch. Godspeed. A big thanks to the production team for their support in the Crew 3 interviews, including Charles Clendaniel, Bill Stafford, and Josh Valkersell. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back next week. <laughs>